Good evening again to everyone who might have just seen the last few seconds of our little dry run there. Um, welcome to episode 9 of Scottonomics. Um, my name is William Thompson and along with my co-host Karen Van Sweden and we welcome you as fellow travellers as we continue to discover how the economy really works all the while providing nourishment for independent minds. Now, we all know that something is wrong with the way that the economy is currently working. And every episode, we ask challenging questions to leading economists from across the globe as we explore the lies, the myths, and in many cases, the downright lies that govern our lives in a modern economy. Now, we hope that Scotonomics proves to be essential viewing for anyone interested in Scottish politics and the Scottish economy. So to help us do that, please do subscribe to the Independence Live channel, uh, like the show, share it and also comment through tonight's show. And what a show it is. Uh, tonight we have a fantastic conversation with Jane Gleeson White, an Australian economist and author whose interests spread from double the invention of double-entry bookkeeping uh, right through to discussing how women have been erased from modern economics. And of course, double-entry bookkeeping is really the foundation of accountancy and also our modern economy. Now, we covered a lot during the conversation with uh, Jane. It's a brilliant um, conversation that we had. But first things first, hello to my Scotonomics co-host, Karen Van Sweden. Hello, how are you? Um, I'm very well. Let's try this again and see if we can get it working this time. Um, what have you been up to this week? Um, yeah, so um, lots of interesting things happening in economics this week. I'd like to give a shout out to the MMT podcast with... Um, our advisor for Modern Money Scotland, um, Tim Rideout, which was absolutely fantastic. Um, the uh, Federal Reserve has just published a paper. That's really interesting. I'd recommend that as well. And John Yarmouth, the chairman of the Budget House Committee, the Budget House Committee have just approved the Build Back Better bill. So that's really interesting too. Um, the other thing to point out as well is this... Um, the, 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 the dreadful um, video that I saw this week with the um, Chinese skyscrapers um, being exploded, which um, is an incredible waste of real resources. And when you think that people in Ireland can barely get a home and there's all these homes being knocked down, that's really um, very sad. Isn't very sad? Yeah, I've, I've just put the video up there. We managed to uh, to grab that. But yeah, it is, it's incredible and it just shows that the idea that this world is um, is is working in the way that it should be when all of these resources are being wasted in one area when they're desperately needed in so many other countries, of course, not just Ireland, but you know, right across the globe in terms of needing for houses. So yeah, well, that sounds like a, a busy week and I believe you've got something uh, quite important to do next week as well before our next show. Yes, so I'm travelling down to London on Friday um, to meet the other plaintiffs from the Pay to Pollute campaign. Um, and we are getting ready for our court day, uh, which will be at the beginning of December. But the Oil and Gas Authority are being, uh, they have their court day on Friday. So, yeah, that's going to be a busy weekend for me. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like you'd forgot about that, but I know that you hadn't. <laughs> uh, we'll put links to all of this in the um, description so you can follow uh, some of these links. Uh, well, my week um, started because um, I started my um, master's in the green economy and I'm already behind, but um, I'm not really too surprised by that. It's, it's been fascinating learning uh, about all of the uh, climate conferences as we lead up to COP26 in Glasgow. And I suppose how... Uh, 
successful or unsuccessful they've been um, has been you know completely eye-opening and you know I'm looking ahead to what we're hoping will happen in Glasgow and COP26 and um, it, up until now there has been just a lot of uh, blah 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 and um, I know someone else um, has been saying that as well Build back better, blah, blah, blah. Green economy, blah, blah, blah. Net zero by 25, 2050, blah, blah, blah. Net zero by 2050, blah, blah, blah. Net zero, blah, blah, blah. Climate neutral, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I think she's an amazing woman. And I was watching that, I was reminded of the um, quote from one of the Papua New Guinea delegates at the 2007 pre-conference, uh, I think it was COP17, and um, he stood up and he shouted to the Americans, if, if you're not willing to lead, then get out of the way. And that's how I feel right now about a lot of the global leadership when it comes to, to climate. Get out of the way and let other people lead us to a much safer uh, world. So, yes, we had that. And um, as well as that, I've been looking at a really interesting um, paper called The Housing Theory of Everything. And I'm going to put that link as well. My camera's frozen a little bit. Um, yeah, so I'll put a link in that as well. That's incredible. Uh, okay, so um, on to tonight's show. Now, we couldn't really think of anyone better than Jane to discuss this wide-ranging subject. Now, I found Jane via an amazing article, a really emotional article that she wrote in The Guardian. Um, it was called What Really Counts? How the Patriarchy of Economics Finally Tore Me Apart. Uh, I'll link to the article in the description below. Now, Karen and I explore some of the themes in her article and from her amazing life in tonight's episode of Scotonomics, and I hope you enjoy it. Jane Gleeson-White to Scotonomics. I read your article, which actually William flagged up to me, and he said, we need to talk to this woman. And um, I read your article, and honestly, Jane, I was moved. I was close to tears at the end of it, um, because for me, and for William as well, we have been aware for some time now how crazy orthodox economics is. But uh, that's really, for me, from, a, I guess, from a scientific point of view, where I just think some of the assertions in orthodox economics are just not scientific or sensible or logical. But what you pointed out in your article was the deep misogyny embedded within it. And, and the question that you posed at the, at the beginning, and I'll just come out with this quote for the audience as well, is the economics profession a functionary and a tool of the patriarchy? Or is patriarchy a functionary and a tool of economics? What are your yeah. thoughts about that? Well, I should just make clear that I'm quoting Marilyn Waring, who is an extraordinary New Zealand former politician and economist who was the first feminist or the first woman to investigate um, economics from, from a, a feminist point of view in the 80s when all other disciplines um, were being examined by feminists. So I, my, so I did not start off with that as the kind of leading quote into my thinking on this essay but by the end of it I was well I, I was sort of convinced that you, you can't really tell they're kind of indistinguishable because modern economics was and it's interesting that 
from a scientific point of view, you think it looks ludicrous because in the 19th century, economics changed its name from political economy to economics to kind of align itself with physics and, you know, the more sciencey, you know, it tried to become more rational and scientific and mathematical, but probably became madder than it had already been when it was more a historical study and much more salient. Um, but what I found in investigating um, the history, in the, especially in the 19th century, where the kind of um, big ideas and theories of contemporary economics were established, particularly by Adam Smith, but more importantly by Alfred Marshall, a British economist who's known today as the redeemed and revered father of neoclassical economics. But he actually deliberately erased from economic consideration the unpaid labor of the household and all women's work um, and all care work in particular. So, and it wasn't, you know, so it wasn't even that he just erased it in a kind of vacuum, um, but it was a seriously debated question, you know, is unpaid work that happens in the domestic sphere part of an economy and should it also be part of a census, you know, so part of the statistical um, information about a nation. And he, in 1881, was one of the leading people who argued against the inclusion of what was called unproductive, what was called um, household labor. And he deemed it in just one sentence, unproductive and wiped it out of census statistics. So that embedded in contemporary economics, um, the idea that all household labor and unpaid care work is unproductive. And that continues to be its definition in contemporary economics, which is just mind blowing. Yeah, and, and what shocked me as well is how influential uh, globally his ideas have been. You know, he's, he's in, his thinking has uh, been taken on by um, global organisations. And uh, this, is, this is deeply embedding this misogyny. I mean, I think the shocking thing to realise, especially for me, because I arrived in this subject really by investigating an interesting aside in the Renaissance, which was the coincidence of the arrival of double entry bookkeeping, Hindu Arabic mathematics, and you know the flourishing of art and culture that we know as a Renaissance. And so that took me to double entry bookkeeping, which eventually took me to national accounts, which were formulated and you know um, made, were standardized in 1953 by the UN. And it's through these national accounts that we're all familiar with today in GDP figures, because the national accounting system generates GDP figures, which are the default measure of economic growth, which every single nation is chasing. Um, so hidden in these um, national accounts is Marshall's categorization of care work and domestic labor as unproductive so that this work is not counted as part of a national economy. It's just completely erased. So while we might imagine that, you know, we've made many advances in feminism and the valuing sort of, you know, um, mentally if um, of care work, we actually don't value it in economic terms as well. But even worse is the fact that war is valued and does contribute to economic growth. And there's a, you know, a stunning kind of statistic, which is contemporary expenditure globally on war is $14 trillion US dollars a year. And in 1995, the UN Human Development Report found that 
the unpaid care work done by women, so this is 20 years ago, 25 years ago, um, was worth 11 trillion. So today it would be worth far more than the, the amount we spend on war, and yet that is not counted. So the life-giving work of care and mostly domestic work done by, still mostly done by women, is not counted, and yet the weapons of mass destruction are counted as economic growth. So that is madness. <laughs> Yeah, and, and the other thing that is really excluded and and debased, I would argue as well, is the um, is the environment. You know, this is this is uh, the, the the damage to it is is termed an externality. Yeah, uh, and and that's the, you know it's that's so incredibly damaging for all of us. This is our home, the planet. Well, that yeah. I mean, I guess that was the other shocking thing. So I had, you know, for the last 10 years, I've been writing about this stuff and I had been mostly pursuing that environmental question because yes, in economics, it's considered an externality. And so it's not part of the economy, but we all know, and now it's blindingly obvious that we churn up nature and chuck out the waste back into nature. And there's no, you know, nature is definitely not external. The economy is embedded on the planet within, you know, the environment. So that's another fallacious um, piece of, you know, thinking in contemporary economics. And what the national accounting system does is, again, in the same way that it sort of institutionalizes the erasure of the most vital care work done by women and other unpaid carers, um, so it also erases the value of the natural world. So it does value a cut down tree or cleaning up an oil spill, but it doesn't value a healthy um, ocean or a healthy atmosphere or a growing tree. You know, and we know now that healthy oceans and atmospheres and living trees are absolutely critical for our well-being. So the whole system, from a common sense point of view, is absolutely insane. And yet I spent the last 10 years talking to people who still, you know, find this, you know, they're so embedded with the idea that all of this is external to the actual economy. It really, it, they struggle to, to understand how you might include these things as being of any economic value. Was, that was very upsetting for me as well to read how distressing you found some of those meetings, you know, oh. when you have financiers talking about water in terms of a commodity you know and and you put it very succinctly this is a life-giving molecule because there is some concern in Scotland just now that um, people are eyeing up our water resources we have 90% of the UK's water um, and uh, I think some people are, are thinking that perhaps we could be vulnerable to this type of you know economic predation upon our resources there has been plenty of economic predation on our resources up until now. Well, that's, you know, yeah, it was the water moment on Wall Street in 2016 that just actually, as I described it in my essay, kind of cracked my mind. You know, like I had a, I wouldn't say a total nervous breakdown, but that was the moment of no return. I just thought, what, are, like, water is, as you say, a life-giving molecule. It's the foundation of life on Earth, or one of them. And it's also in sort of economic or human social terms, it's 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 a human right. It's not um, a commodity. It's not a commodity. Um, so that just blew my mind. And and the particular incident was three um, hedge fund managers, like serious bigwigs, connected to former presidents and things. So we're talking way up, 
the um, pecking order of you know global finance, they were sort of salivating over this new form of wealth creation called of new form of wealth in the context of this natural capital conversation, which I should add is the economic way or the accounting way of trying to bring a value to the natural world, for example, water. Um, so this was a natural capital conference and they said they were salivating over this brand new, exciting surefire bet for their investments, which they call blue gold. And I was sitting there thinking, blue gold, what's blue gold? You know, it sounds amazing. And then I realized they were talking about water and I just thought, oh, you are kidding me. And that's, yeah, my mind just cracked. I just thought, oh, this is insanity. Like I'm in a place of mad people and it's, you can't, you know, to stay sane, you have to, your brain has to crack. <laughs> anyway, so that yeah. was sort of the moment of my point of no return because I realized that under this language of natural capital, which purported to be a language of sustainable um, inclusion of the natural world within the economic system, these, what I now think of as huge violences um, were taking place, you know, so water considered to be a natural capital and the next investment opportunity so that absolutely people are buying up water, you know, so then I spoke to all sorts of people who told me about, you know, geomapping of the earth's surface already happening in 2016 um in china and by big organizations in the united states including um bloomberg to photograph and record through citizen you know mobile phones and everything on the ground every single water supply on earth and just kind of divide it up so absolutely scotland should be concerned and in fact one of the big conferences i went to in this area was was out of edinburgh the natural capital conference for this very reason you know that the people organizing it were concerned that Scotland has all this amazing natural wealth that is not currently counted in economic terms, which makes you very vulnerable to this sort of exploitation. Yeah. And yeah. that's one of the points that I picked up from your article, Jane, was that um, for things to have value, they first have to be counted. Yeah. And that was a really important point when we were looking at the domestic work and also these resources. A couple of points on speaking about um, blue gold water. And um, the first one relates to Scotland is that we are worried that people are going to come and take it. But I'm also worried that we start to look at it like we did oil and think this is how we grow our economy. This oh. is how we continue to grow by selling water. And so that's the point I'd like people in Scotland to think about. Is that really how we want to see growth by controlling this vital human need? Um, that, because, you know, Scotland gets rain and it will get even more rain. And that leads into my second point is that um, with climate change, more water, more rain is falling on the north and less is falling on the south. So if we're in a position of treating water as a resource, then it's going to increase global inequality. And that's a huge concern. And again, I want people to think about that in Scotland. Is that really how we want to be earning our revenue by making the global south poorer for their demand for, 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 um, for blue gold, as you put it? Yeah, absolutely, William. I mean, that your question about Scotland um, goes very much to my heart and is a part of the subject of another essay I'm writing now, um, because in 2020, just in terms of the opportunism of these global financiers cruising around the world and buying up resources, um, so that in particular, there's a case in Australia of a huge um, 
mining company that while everyone was in lockdown on his private jet, he and his team um, went all around the world to, I think, 45 different, mostly developing nations, but including a place that I'm very interested in, Papua New Guinea, and did deals for their water supplies, um, signing over water supplies in vulnerable areas. Um, and the rhetoric coming out of, for example, the um, government of Papua New Guinea was, here is an opportunity for economic growth for New Guinea, you know, to sell our water to this big um, mining magnate who's going to, you know, take it and use it in his mining, um, in, you know, in his mining industry in Western Australia. And I just think what you said about, you know, in terms of Scotland, as long as we stay pinned to these to the idea of economic growth these sorts of dilemmas are going to be coming right to the heart of places like New Zealand and Scotland and Papua New Guinea and any other nation which is blessed with water because water as we've seen in California and as you say so many places in the global south I mean Africa obviously Australia water is going to become the most scarce and we it already is we just don't realize it yet and that's a wonderful point about GDP is that um, Papua New Guinea's GDP will go up when yeah. money comes in, invests in the water supply, but people will now have to pay for water. So the idea that people's life has lives have improved and their access to water will be reduced, the idea that it's improved because the figures say that is just completely bonkers, isn't it? It's, exactly. it's, it's a measurement. It's a, it's a it's a way to measure the success of capital, not the success totally. of citizens. And we really have to move away from that. I've got totally. a question on um, economic models. Do you think if more women were involved in creating economic models, that we would have much more concern about um, the climate, uh, the biosphere and the environment in general? I mean, that's such a beautiful and very hypothetical question. Um, but I just can't help but say yes. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's a dangerous question to ask me, William, because I feel that it's so hypothetical. But I will just say that when asked by someone the other day to imagine what would happen if care work had been made central to our economy since 1953 um, in the global accounting system, what, how different would Earth look or would ever, the way we do things look? And it was such a global question you know such an inextricably linked to every single thing question because my mind went okay well this would happen but oh no then you'd need this politician oh but then you'd need this political system then you so I feel that your question sort of goes a bit is a bit of the same nature in that yes I I can imagine that um, you know for example there are some amazing female economists that I quote in my essay and there are many many more unfortunately still way too few um, relative to how many men still dominate I mean it's still incredibly the academic discipline most dominated by men, which I was so shocked to discover in writing this essay, even more than science and technology and, um, you know, engineering and the, and the as we call it here, STEM. I don't know if you have the word STEM, but um, those disciplines. So I feel that, you know, that it, it just would by nature because um, women know the value of the care work that is not counted in in the economy so i feel you know most of the interesting work that's being done in terms of economics and care is being done by women and you know just to really drive home the the way that these two things correlate the natural world and women 
in a, another um, examination I was doing into the history of law related to environmental law, I was absolutely dumbfounded to discover in 1960, or in the 1960s, in an American um, legal handbook for first year law students, an aside that said, because nature, like women, is a resource to be possessed or a possession, you know, and I just went, 1960, this was still allowed, you know, fine to have. So there was this, you know, conflation of the natural world and women as kind of possessions of men. And obviously, historically, that's true. But the residue of that still existed in a legal textbook in the United States in the 1960s. So I, you know, that is the extent of the problem which we're trying to unpick here. So I do feel these two things go together to sort of lead back to your question, William, in terms of, you know, would women, um, if given, you know, the opportunity, create a more um, earth-centred, care work-centred um, economics? And I, I'm going to say yes. Also, your Aunt Nancy, and uh, I, I found that actually it's quite upsetting to think about it now because this is a woman who clearly was incredibly bright even as a child and then went on and uh, married into um, the kind of civil service aristocracy. And her, despite her, her fantastic education, um, she ended up having a lobotomy. Mm. And I, I felt that that would be, for me, inevitable in that situation. If your intellect was so suppressed in the way that hers clearly had been, this is something that would drive me personally mad. I've oh. always been in search of knowledge. And if you are suppressed from that in some sort of way, I, I think that would be uh, mind cracking, you know? Totally. I mean, I hadn't um, planned to write about her <laughs> um, because it's such a personal story. And, but when I agreed to write this essay, as I do say in the essay, um, almost immediately, you know, like a couple of hours later, I actually emailed the editor and said, no, 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 I can't write about this because something was just stopping me. And when she replied, you know, why, out came this, you know, tears, rage, everything over what had happened to women in general throughout history, the erasure of women in all sorts of ways and their valuable work, but also my aunt. Um, because not only was she brilliant, but she won the economics medal and when she was married, she was forced to give up her career. So I hadn't realized how deeply, because she ended up in England. I mean, the, the, she was originally from England and came to Australia and was educated here and then went back to England um, when she got, well, with her career as a diplomat um, and met a British ambassador and married him and was forced to give up her career for the sake of his. And so, yeah, when, um, yeah, so when I, when required to write about women in economics, I did not realise that, that that story still haunted me and that, you know, having married him and given up her career and become, a you know, a dutiful wife and hostess to an ambassador, um, when she was age 45, she had a breakdown. I don't, I don't think it was her first, but it was a big enough one to um, for her to have one of the last lobotomies in the UK in the 1970s. So... Um, yeah, that just seemed to be such a emblematic story of what we're talking about, of the sort of erasures of, 
women's intellects and but all of their capacities you know it doesn't just have to be an intellect in her case it was her intellect um you know but so much else of women's value has been erased you know it's it's the waste that just the sheer waste of yeah. that that really is is when you multiply that up by half the world's population probably you know that we we could be achieving so much more as humankind um in our in our home in the planet if this this kind of thing wasn't happening and this and you also point out that it's still happening i mean i was really shocked at the figures about female slavery one in every 130 women and girls on the planet lives in modern slavery uh, yeah i was really shocked by that really shocked um again this this waste of of you know and and women being seen as a resource like the planet like the trees like water um you know this commodification of humans and um and the environment is deeply disturbing for me i find it deeply disturbing you've been talking about the sort of emotional impact of that story of nancy and these erasures and yes for me it was you know just devastating and um, enraging and you know weep uh, I wept and also we are actually as you just said then we're killing ourselves like we are single you know we are these systems are destroying life on earth and yet still we don't seem to be able to think outside them you know so you know good on you for being a plaintiff in this case because these things you know on by the end of you know uh more particularly when I was looking at the environment, so-called, you know, the natural world and the way that that's being, I guess, still is the enclosure movement going on where, you know, various tracts of the earth are still being privatised and sort of taken over by global corporations and effectively stolen from the Indigenous people, still going on, as we know. Um, and by the end of reading about all of this, I just thought this isn't actually a war for earth which is happening at these junctures, you know, with indigenous lands being taken over by corporations. I mean, you know, there is an index now of, of fighters who die in the battle for their lands. Um, you know, they calculate every year. Um, it's Jonathan Watts, I think, calculates how many fighters on behalf of the planet die trying to save their lands from corporations. So there's actually, I'm now thinking, I'm now calling it a war for the earth. It's not yet well known, but you know, so these these are really serious questions. And what you're doing is part of, you know, trying to stop this. I mean, it, let's just call it rape. It's rape. Yeah. Of the earth, I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to lighten up slightly. From yeah. <laughs> because um, I was really interested in why you got into all of this and your internship and that reading and then reading a, 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 a 15th century text and how that had um, drawn you towards your path in economics. That's the perfect way to lighten up, Karen, because um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, my path into this was um, through the Renaissance and through Renaissance art. So I had an internship at the Peggy Guggenheim Museum in Venice um, and, you know, fell in love with Venice and looked and, you know, learned about all the art, the extraordinary art. And so I lived in Venice for three months and was just immersed in this beautiful city. And then I did an economics degree after returning to Australia. And in my first accounting lecture, 
because I did, you know, like I wanted to do a very traditional economics degree because I knew that I needed to know this information. I, I was already curious about, you know, I'd already read Marx and I wanted to know what the kind of Bible said, the economic Bible. Um, and in my first accounting lecture, in fact, an amazing lecturer, very um, inspiring and quite radical, mentioned this um, encyclopedia of mathematics and the fact that the first accounting treatise had been published in Venice in the 15th century. And I just remember thinking, store that information away because that is incredible that this notoriously boring subject could be connected with the city that I'd just been living in and is one of the most beautiful and kind of romantic cities on earth. And so the combination of those two facts, um, the beauty of Venice and this accounting history um, eventually took me, you know, into the archive and into this book. And what I realized was that, well, in fact, what I thought I was writing was a sort of really interesting, because this account, this um, father of accounting, Luca Pacioli, was a Renaissance monk and a Franciscan friar, and he was also an expert in the new art of perspective painting and the leading mathematician probably in Europe, but certainly in Italy of his day. And at the time, mathematics was still Hindu-Arabic numerals. So it was really, really primitive in Europe. Um, but Arabic numerals had just arrived and they were very sophisticated. So he was an advanced mathematician and he wrote this huge encyclopedia and at the last minute included in it a treatise on double entry bookkeeping. So my real interest was in the art and the mathematics and the fact that this um, Fra Luca Petroli taught Leonardo da Vinci the mathematics for perspective painting, which allowed him to paint The Last Supper. So I thought I was writing about art and mathematics and culture. And when I submitted my manuscript, the editor and publisher said, Jane, if you just take off all these layers of art and platonic solids and, you know, Renaissance kind of esoteric theory, you've actually written a history of accounting. And I just went, you are absolutely kidding me. No way on earth am I right? You know, will I go and do that work and remove all my nice veils and reveal the history that I'd actually written? But it turned out they're right. And I had actually written history of accounting inadvertently. So yes, that is quite funny because I did not set out to do that. I certainly did not set out to write a second book about accounting. Yeah, and you you uh, assert in your article as well that this is really, you can see the connection between this form and the basis of modern day capitalism. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so this double entry bookkeeping system was the first um, mechanism that we had to calculate profit. So it also invented the category of capital as an idea, which was the wealth of the merchant. And from, so this book was published in 1494 and it spread around the world, you know, went to America in the um, 19th century and slowly was adopted by every single business on earth as their accounting system. And so commerce became geared to the pursuit of profit. So that's, so it was the origin of the capitalist system. And then in 1953 with the United Nations um, national accounting system, it was kind of institutionalized at a national level as well. So yes, the origins of our, you know, of the measuring parts of our global economy are in Renaissance Italy. We've been speaking quite a bit about economics and accountancy and how they link together. But what I wanted was, um, we really need to talk about how we increase economic empowerment for women. So how do we do that? I mean, I 
tried to touch on that in my essay um, because obviously it's become such a huge uh, question. So my interest is more in the unpaid labor of women um, and how that becomes valued. And so in my essay, I refer to a new organization called An Economy of Our Own, which is a sort of loose collaboration of women and men um, in the United States, which uh, was founded in 2020 to try and bring to center stage questions about women and money and work and care work. And, you know, so they've run a few Zoom um, sessions this year, which I've been to. And there are so many different ideas about how we would do this from reforming banking systems to um, buying land for women to, in fact, one of the people spoke about a particular project which had bought land um, in New England as a sort of, you know, women's compound where they would, you know, sustainably farm and raise children, you know, so I guess a kind of, um, you know, utopian sort of community. So, I mean, from initiatives like that to, you know, then it goes right up to the more familiar ones like you know, within the official economy, which is to get more women on boards and to have more women studying economics at university because it's now, you know, it's still so, um, you know, unequal. So, I mean, I was hoping to address that more in my essay, but that question is so huge. That question is so huge because it just touches on everything. You know, I think, um, Ricky Gard Diamond, who was one of the founding members of an economy of our own, talks about, you know, the need to rethink everything because money itself is this, as she calls it, a, you know, a sort of it's been created and run by the money bully boys, as she calls it forever. You know, I mean, we're talking about an ancient system. So I, I look, that question makes my head sort of spin a bit, William, you know, so I mean, I think, for example, um, you know, I think the women's marches, the global women's marches that have been erupting around the world since about 2017 are important, you know, I feel that that's really potentially epoch changing, because I keep returning to the fact that women are not a minority, we're half the human population on earth. You know, I mean, my number one thing would be I would like us to have a global um, moratorium on spending on war and spend and shift that $14 trillion to spend on care work. You know, I mean, that's a really simple thing to say and obviously very hard to imagine in practice. But the more we can think of those two things alongside each other and other gaping madnesses like that, I think the better, you know. You know, another place where action is really happening and that I'm always trying to look to is local initiatives, you know, in local communities. I just feel that that's going to be, especially now the world has sort of gone a bit still. Um, there are so many fascinating new initiatives in neighbourhoods, you know. I mean, even in my own neighbourhood, there's now an online sort of, you know, group of people for, you know, checking in on each other and, and, you know, making sure everybody's okay and then giving advice on various different things from our particular um, expertise. So I feel that things like that are happening. I don't, I don't know how you feel about that and whether you feel I'm slightly dodging that question, William. Well, I, I mean, I would, I would really encourage women into places of power 
get to get into politics. Um, and yeah. this is where you can really affect change. It's difficult. It's combative. You have to uh, uh, argue your point of view very well. So you have to research your point of view very well. That, but that's a good thing. I, I, I would say from having a science degree, you, 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 when you do science as well, you're allowed to be wrong. And I think a lot of people that go into uh, politics think that they, they have to be right all the time. And I think that that's just not realistic. I think you can go in with your experience and, uh, and, and say, it's okay to sometimes say, I changed my mind about that. So I think for, I think a lot of women are put off by the combative nature of it, but if they don't get in there, they're not there and they, they have to be there. And also I would say to people from a more progressive political point of view as well, you need to be in there as well. If you, if you consider that you're a progressive, please go and stand as a candidate somewhere. <laughs> please <laughs> anywhere go on go for it you know I encourage my friends to do it so um and I, I my, my branch are keen for me to stand in in a local election so if I'm chosen I will do that but um yeah it's, it's uh Jane, Jane a sober a sobering comment is that we interviewed two uh secondary school economics teachers on Scotonomics and um, just a few weeks ago and both of them said that it was a majority of boys who were in their classes and they hadn't seen any change in the amount of women who, who were taking up economics so so that was you know that was really unfortunate we also asked them if uh, if the younger generation were less materialistic and again they were saying no they couldn't see any discernible difference so it was a little bit sobering speaking to people who spend so much time with the younger generation um i mean that was one of the shocking things that in the excellent book by linda davis the xx economy which is about you know a new book about what would happen if women did get um you know it's very comprehensive she talks about every aspect of the economy and all over the world from you know actual work in these places so there's it's full of excellent statistics um but you know this i this fact that economics is still dominated by men more than any other discipline i find that shocking so how interesting and disappointing to hear that it's is already like that in school and you know another interesting thing that i've um learned in my travels with economics is it also correlates i guess not surprisingly um, the people who study it, especially the sort of finance end of it, are more materialistic anyway. So it sort of correlates. So you, you go into that because this is about wealth creation and generation. So it sort of is a vicious circle as well in terms of the sort of values that people might bring to this discipline, uh, the values that we need to eradicate immediately. <laughs> Well, uh, Kate Raworth uh, alludes to that in her book, uh, Donut Economics, which is that, um, yeah, economics professors generally don't give as much to charity as other types of um, chairs. <laughs> they've done their, they've run their cost benefit analysis they've run the cost benefit analysis. <laughs> and, and, um, and, uh, but the other thing that she says that you also mentioned in your article as well, um, that women need to think about as well as economics is the language of policy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's what's driving my whole interest, really, or, or the fact that I can't leave it behind, because I keep trying to leave economics behind, but I just think it's such a powerful language, and it does literally drive policy. And, you know, this is a tragic realisation that that as long as economics remains in this kind of 
really, you know, let's go back to the opening quote, the patriarchal, as long as it's a tool and a kind of um, creator of the patriarchal um, system, then it's, you know, it's going to be really hard to change things. So, I mean, I'm really interested in your answer, you know, that, that politics is so important. And, and it is because that's where polit uh, policy gets made. So, you know, if, if new arguments can be brought to bear on policy decisions that aren't economic, oh, that would be a revolution in itself. Yeah, and I'd just like to, to give, a, give a hands up to the men who personally uh, pushed me. Um, I would start off with the, the guy who was the um, convener, uh, uh, the, the first branch that was really involved in, in the SNP, and then also William. <laughs> William's pushed me as well in ways that were would take me right out of my comfort zone doing this type of thing. But, you know, uh, yeah, the, the guys and the girls have to keep pushing the girls because the girls tend to be a bit reticent about doing this type of thing. And uh, we need to be a bit more bullish. Uh, the girls, we need to be a bit more bullish. So, yes, yeah. we do have to fight that and get girls to be bullish and stand up for themselves. Yeah, um, Jane, I thought it was fascinating that economics seemed to be something that kind of was through your whole family you know starting with your start with your aunt and then yourself and your and your um, daughter is there any particular reason why you think economics seems to be something that's kind of at the heart of what your family are interested in no and I never even thought about it until I came to write this essay so this essay has revealed this whole sort of hidden family history as well and I even thought of my you know so my my grandparents are English and, well, my, my father's English. They're all, you know, and my grandmother during the First World War ran away from home as a teenager in London and went to work for the Bank of England. And I don't know if that was kind of the origin. You know, she was working as a clerk, as a bookkeeper, actually. Um, she was good with numbers. So I don't know if, you know, if it's some kind of genetic thing or, but it was very interesting that three of her four children all studied economics, two daughters, two of her three daughters and her son and then yes I suddenly thought well and yes I did not, not related to dad you know he ended up in finance and I I was more interested in Marx and wanted to kind of sort of interrogate the system but I studied economics in order to have that language um and then I thought well and now my daughter's studying economics so it's I mean maybe we we observe each other and sort of inadvertently do that or so I don't know why she chose to do economics um but you know for both of us in fact it's something quite similar we both did it at school um at you know in the last two years as a kind of a side as just a sort of filler because we were going to give it up and continue with our other thing for me it was art and for her it was history that she was going to do and then give up economics but both of us got so fascinated by economics and found that we had a sort of natural sense of it that we actually and I because I remember fully her agony giving up history instead of economics it was like a betrayal of her soul um and something similar happened with me so yeah maybe look who knows if it's in our genes or if it's in our water in our house I don't know but it feels like we have a natural kind of aptitude for it but with very different points of view on it or very different you know, it is a language. I don't know if you both find that, that it's a language. Yeah, I mean, um, that, my degree is in anatomical sciences. So, um, you know, I did human dissection and uh, looked inside people's bodies. But the thing that's wow. for me fascinating about uh, economics 
is it's the way that people interact with each other with that tool, which is currency, oh. and how they're using their, their bodies themselves with each other, and the, the flow of interaction between them and how money um, facilitates that or doesn't, you know, depending oh, on. That's a fascinating point of view. And I would just also like to, you know, your comment that science being with the, the method, that the scientific method, you can be wrong. And that is just such a beautiful observation and reminder because in economics, you know, I mean, obviously there are disputes and things rise to the top and other theories fall away. But yeah, I'm not, you know, it's a, well, I can't think of an economist who's admitted that they're wrong in the public view. I've, known many to admit it behind the scenes yeah well i think there's a lot of economists who are coming over to this mmt thought of economics and saying what yes. they've been taught for over a long period of time they're quite happy to say now is completely wrong and we've interviewed a few of them on the shows i, I think economics isn't about numbers and unfortunately that is how economics that's kind of the language of economics is numbers and it's really not the sense of it the sense of it is in words and i think that economics tried so hard and still tries to be a science and i think that's why it went down the mathematical route to prove it was a science a, a lot of the theories that we follow in modern day economics have been proved to be wrong but we're still blindly following them, I think, because people are so wedded to this type. And, and you're right, you know, in science, people are happy to say, oh, I was wrong. Let's follow that path to see where it gets us. And there's such an intransigence in the study of economics and it's to the real detriment of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the subject. And when you bring that up as well, it really makes me think about that, that aspect of uh, orthodox economics, which has gone down that mathematical path ostensibly in the uh, seeking out status uh, we want our yeah. uh, we want what we're studying to have the same status totally. as, as a science and um and and that that seeking status how toxic that's become um because so many people are scared of looking at economics because it's hidden behind this veil of over mathematication you know that a lot of economists would say this and that seeking status that in itself is a very sad thing yeah and dangerous you know toxic i mean i what you said um william and what you're talking about karen is for me the problem in a nutshell you know the fact that in its quest for status and you know validity um economics has gone down this crazy mathematical route using you know differential calculus which you must know from science or i know from mathematics to make postulations or which turn out to be you know statements of fact in the trans translation about an economy and you know the way the money supply moves which is just completely fallacious you know as a 20 year old student i could disprove the nonsense but still they run the global economy you know it's just yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. And thanks so much for, for joining us on Scott and Alex. Such a pleasure. Yes, thank, thank you. you. And, um, and we look forward to hopefully talking to you again in the future. Yeah, and I look forward to hearing about your political career and more about both of your work, which sounds really important. And thank you so much. That was such a pleasure. So interesting for me. Good, good. Yeah, it was fascinating yeah. for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
And there you go. I hope everyone enjoyed that. Kieran, it was, we really enjoyed it, but it was nice to have a guest who says, I really enjoyed that as well. Wasn't it? And that's what we yeah. got. That's what we got at the end of at the end of that. Um, we've had um, a couple of comments. Um, Wayne had just asked at the end there. He said, "I wonder what it is that seems to put a lot of women off studying economics." I thought that was quite an interesting an interesting question. Any thoughts? Yeah, um, I, I I think from what we gathered from our guests from Economics in Ten, I think there is a little bit of a thinking that it's the way to make money in the world that the, the understanding of money um whereas you know you realize when you look at it that it's really a, a very important thing to understand for the sake of a, a political policy um which i think if a lot of girls understood then perhaps they would more of them would study it perhaps mm. I, I like that point you said about status and um, that's just such a masculine perspective wasn't it of economics that it had to have status so it had to become a it had to become a science, um, I think that's a that, that's a really good example of that kind of masculine approach to the the study of it. Um, well, um, what I'd like to do is just finish with um, a, a a little summary of what we've got coming up in October, because uh, we've got a really busy month. So um, uh, first up is we've got an episode episode 10 of Scotonomics, which is the first in our small nation series and looks at the economics of Iceland. And we've got a short clip, uh, which we can show you before we go. Um, episode 11 um, after that is with Laurie McFarlane, the uh, economics editor at Open Democracy. And we will have a fascinating discussion about all the weird and wonderful things that the UK does completely differently um, from everyone else when it comes to housing and land, like having so much of it in private hands, uh, using so much of it as an investment, and obviously selling so much of it off to the private sector. Weird things that we do that not many other countries do. Um, the final episode in October looks at the green fiscal policy uh, with Claudia Sam. Um, and that's kind of in our lead up to COP26 uh, meeting in uh, November. And you can actually book all bookmark all of these uh, just by going on to the YouTube channel and just pressing um, a little button, which will put them into your um, calendar so you don't miss them. So I'm sure we'll probably drop another couple of things in um, uh, into October in the lead up to um, COP. But um, I'll just show that little clip of the interview that we've got with um, Olaf about Iceland. You have the oldest parliament in the world. You are 500 miles north of Scotland. You have a population, I think, of 335,000 people. Six, um, six, 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 64. Don't take the, don't take, you know, don't, don't increase it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Iceland became independent. It became a republic. Um, what, what I read is it became independent in 1918. It, it was a colony of Denmark, um, but it became a republic in 1944 while Denmark was occupied. So you yep. have been an independent country since 1944. So we really want to delve into the economics of that. And I wanted to know first and foremost about when your own currency was formed um, and when that, that came into you. No surprise you wanted to start with questions around currency. It, it's like when I get all of our guests to talk about sustainable growth, the Sustainable Growth Commission. So before we head off, could you just give us a little summary of, of why you think it's so important that Scotland is monetary sovereign and when it becomes independent? In, in our brilliant interview with Olaf, he talks about the importance 
of monetary sovereignty when it came to the 2008 financial crisis, just basically saying if Iceland didn't have its own country, it would have been completely on its knees. So what what are the main benefits of being monetary sovereign? Well, your your currency is the the your policy tool, and if you're not in control, if your politicians don't control your policy tool, then they can't really freely make policy. Um, you know, the currency is is the tool to drive policy, um, in so much that it's there to pay people to do things that you want them to do within the in the economy as a government. So uh, if you don't control that, then and you're looking to collect that from some other source. You know, you're really hamstrung. You're not independent. We we are we would not be independent unless we have our own currencies, and it has to be free floating, um, a free floating fiat currency. We do not want to peg the currency. We have to go for free floating. Well, that's a nice little summary uh, for us to finish. Um, well, uh, good luck down in uh, London, um, with the pay to pollute mm-hmm. campaign, and we'll see everyone in a couple of weeks um, for our brilliant session and discussion with Olaf about Iceland. And until next time, bye for now. Bye bye. Oh, uh, before, and I'm going to leave you um, the final word with someone else. Build back better, blah, blah, blah. Green economy, blah, blah, blah. Net zero by 25, 2050, blah, blah, blah. Net zero by 2050, blah, blah, blah. Net zero, blah, blah, blah. Climate neutral, blah, blah, blah. Jane Gleeson White to Scotonomics. I read your article, which actually William flagged up to me, and he said, We need to talk to this.